we did is we spoke about this idea of his bainunos, right? That mental process. And we did some fun little exercises, right? Weren't they fun? Mm-hmm. I enjoyed them. Okay. And we spoke about how um, that process works. Now we're going to t- move to talking about the result of it. So the idea was that when a person does this kind of contemplation or meditation or whatever English word you'd like to use, um, regarding the subject matter of the greatness of Hashem, that awareness, that understanding that comes about is going to create ultimately a, a, a emotional <coughs> response. Okay? That emotional response is called fear and love. Okay? Um, and then that fear is going to have an effect on the person's behavior and the love will have an effect on the person's behavior. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So. There's a lot to cover. What I want to do is I want to kind of set out what we need to cover and we'll go through it as slowly as we need to. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about what we left off with, which is how does that mental process, that hisbonus, that contemplation, how does that actually create the emotional response? Okay? Um, once we do that, then we're going to go back and once I feel like we've done that sufficient, we're going to go back into the text and we're going to read the descriptions about the specific emotional response. First, fear, um, and then love, and then the effects of the fear and the effects of the love on our actual performance of mitzvahs. When we do all of that, then we're gonna just kind of wrap it all up together. Do I think we're gonna finish that in one class? No. Based on your experience, are we gonna finish that one class? No, I don't think so. No, okay. But that's the plan. Okay, I have to make an important caveat, which is I'm going to describe the things as the Alter Rebbe intended, them to be understood. Um, and as we will learn later on in the chapter, you are most likely not able to actually do what he describes. In other words, while the contemplation is something you can do, we spoke about in, the, in the last week, right? We did some exercises, we get a taste of what it is, and we all understand that the more you work on something, the better you get. That, that part, the, the kind of mental cognitive part is something we can all do. That, that, it would, that it's going to have the kind of emotional response that we're going to talk about today is very unlikely that you will ever achieve that. I'm not going to say it can't happen. I'm not going to say it won't happen, but it's unlikely. Now, what to do about that becomes subject of the rest of the chapter, okay? So in order to understand the chapter, we have to describe things as they are, which means it's a little bit, um, might sound somewhat fantastical or, or, or hard to relate to because it really is a little bit beyond most of us what we could achieve, okay? Now, to make this clear, what I want to do is I want to first talk about the contrast between the intellect, as is understood in in Tanya, and the emotions as understood in Tanya at this point of the chapter. So we understand what we're trying to transition from, right? Last week we spoke about this cognitive process, and what is the emotional state that it's supposed to lead to? Um. In one of the questions and answers, I think, or no, it was this class, someone asked me about like emotions being in the heart. Do you recall that? Yeah. And I said that that's not a metaphor, that's literal. Simple. Like I mean, you could say it as a metaphor, but it, it really does mean literally. Yeah. Okay. So. Someone over here asked. What? Someone over here asked, right? I'm glad we both have the space, uh, same spatial memory. You were over here. Yeah, I was over there. Yeah. Oh. Did not yeah, see the recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? We never see that. <laughs> Okay, so when we feel emotions, okay, the first thing to know is, the first thing we're gonna start is that emotions are very, we're gonna first describe the, the experience and then we're gonna describe conceptually. The experience of emotions that we're talking about is very physical, meaning the more physical it is, the more we're gonna say it's an emotion, okay? So, I have two people and we say they're both afraid. How do I judge which one is feeling more fear based on what I just said? Shaking. One is shaking, one isn't. So all, assuming all things being equal, which is not always, I say the one is shaking is more afraid. Right? Okay. Are there other physical manifestations of fear other than shaking? What are some of them? Like freezing. Freezing, right? Crying. Could be crying, yeah. Crying. Something's very tense would cause us to cry. What else? Sweating, Sweating right? So now you ima- I want you to imagine the following scenario, okay? There's somebody, and let's go back to 
what we learned about the greatness of Hashem, right? There's somebody who's contemplating how everything good in life is really just Hashem kind of peeking through the curtain at them. And ultimately, that, that all that's just a limited manifestation of how great Hashem is and how wonderful Hashem is. And ultimately, really judging Hashem in terms of, in terms of that goodness is really just it doesn't satisfy our, our sense of Hashem. And they become, the result of that is that they start shaking. They start sweating, right? They freeze up. They get that dryness in their mouth. Yeah? Does that make sense how you can move from one to the other? That just like seems normal? No, right? Well, let's do the opposite. Let's do love. What are some of the, if we, two people say they're both feeling love, desire, which we can group to the same basic thing, how do we differentiate which one's feeling more? Starting with that idea that emotions are fundamentally a physical experience. What are the things we would look for? This person is clearly feeling more love and desire than that person. Physical? Yeah. Dilated pupils. Dilated pupils. What else? Blushing. Blushing. Smiling. Smiling. Right? What else? Blood pressure. Blood pressure, definitely. What else? Stomach hurting. Yeah, that could be some stomach aches. So imagine a person is doing all that contemplation and you're watching them and what overcomes them is all of a sudden their, 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 face, their face starts turning redder, they're more shiny, you see like there's this kind of dilating of the pupils, right? They kind of have this glazed look on their eyes, right? They're like having an emotional response to what they're thinking about, right? And now again, I want you to imagine thinking about, about what we discussed about the greatness of Hashem and producing that kind of an emotional response, right? It seems hard to imagine, okay? That's an experiential side. Now let's look on the conceptual side. What is the difference between the mental state of the intellect and the mental state of the emotion? So for this, what I wanna um, talk about just mental states in general, okay? Um, to clarify the terminology, I want to start like this. Every mental state is subjective. That's what I want to start with. I don't mean it. I don't mean subjective in the sense of matter of an opinion. I mean it only exists as as a mental state is the way a subject, someone, relates to an object, something. So to make a very simple example, I'm right now looking at that bottle, right? The 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 the, the seeing is subjective. In other words, what does that mean? The bottle is there. I'm here. And I am experiencing some sense of the bottle, right? So the seeing is a subjective experience that I'm having, right? I turn away, I'm no longer seeing the bottle, right? The bottle stayed there, I stayed there. So the way the subject relates to or experiences some object is what I mean by subjective experience. Does that make sense? Now, some objective experiences are different than others. For instance, when I say I'm looking at the bottle and I see that the bottle is blue, that's very different than saying I'm looking at the bottle and I can't stand the way it's shaped. Right? Those are two, they're both subjective experiences I'm having, but they're different. And if you think about it, an obvious difference between the two is that when I say I see the bottle is blue, it's more about an awareness of the bottle the way the bottle is. Whereas when I say I can't stand the shape of the bottle, it's more talking about, not about the way the bottle is, but about what? Your emotional relationship to it? Yeah, how I relate to the way the bottle is, right? In other words, in the first thing, the object of my experience is the bottle. In the second thing, the object of the experience is actually myself. I am aware of my own dislike for the shape of the bottle. So while there is some awareness of the shape of the bottle, the, the, the primary thing that is the object of my subjective experience is my own self. Does that make sense? Okay, use another example. I'm currently wet, my raining outside, my jacket has absorbed water because I didn't have a rain jacket or an umbrella or whatever the case might be. So I'm, okay, I can feel the dampness of my jacket, right? That subjective experience is about the, about the kind of just the reality of the jacket. The jacket is damp, right? But I'm also uncomfortable, mildly so, right? That isn't a subjective experience, but the object of that experience is my own self. See the difference? Now, in that, am I also, am I also have a sense that the thing that is making me uncomfortable is the dampness of my jacket? Sure but it's almost the secondary aspect. It's kind of the background element. Make sense? Okay. This leads us to a very important and sometimes unpleasant observation because people don't like to think of this. Every emotion, when you are having any emotional experience, okay, assuming that you are accepting that emotion, you're embracing that emotional experience. I mean, sometimes we have an emotional experience and we don't. So like for instance, right now I said that I'm uncomfortable because of my jacket. 
But other than using it as an example, I actually am turning my mind away from it, so I'm not actually having the experience of discomfort. But if you're actually embracing and, and attentive to your emotional experiences, the thing that you are, oh, the thing that you, the, the object of your experience, the object of your subjective awareness is yourself. Which means every emotional experience is in some sense fundamentally about, just all about you. It's all entirely self-reinforcing. It's how I am aware of myself. And now that you can, this has an interesting feedback loop. Let's say you are aware of how uncomfortable you are. Do you like that? Yeah, that makes you more annoyed, right? So, so if, you, if you're aware of how uncomfortable you are, you just let that go, what happens? You become kind of annoyed, right? But then you're aware of how annoyed you are, right? If this builds on itself, what happens? If you're just like not to, if you just let that process continue. Or conversely, like you're experiencing something and it's, and you, you're like, I really like this, right? And, I, and it feels good to like this. So I like the fact that I like it and you keep that going on for a while, what happens? You become more and more wrapped up in your own experience, the point that the experience of yourself becomes something that actually clouds you and blinds you from everything else, okay? Where do we see this happen regularly in everyday life? Anyone know? Hunger. What? Hunger. Well, okay, yes, hunger. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we get that hungry, but maybe, maybe we do. <laughs> I was gonna say little children, <laughs> right? I don't like it. And within five seconds, I don't like it, becomes a full-blown tantrum, and there's like literal zero awareness of reality outside their own physical, like, ah. Or converse something, something else. That makes sense? So the whole experience of emotion is all around awareness of yourself and how that then reinforces a different kind of sense of yourself and a different sense of yourself. Now, are we just emotional beings? No. no. So usually that gets, that gets short-circuited either because like physical limitations, like the child burns themselves out because they can't physically sustain the temper tantrum or maturity kicks in, right? There's awareness of reality beyond yourself or something, right? But that's kind of the emotional experience. Is that anything like what we talked about as like a state of mind? Does that conceptually match what we we're talking about last week in terms of that Hisbainus process? In this Hisbainus process, what were, we, what, were we what were we trying to bring our subjective awareness to? Totally on something else, right? In fact, remember how we spoke about that if you like get excited about how good you're doing, on that little exercise, you're not doing the exercise anymore. So conceptually, the more we are in that kind of hisboinus, you know, state of contemplation, meditation, the more we're aware of, in this case, Hashem as the object of our experience, and our awareness of ourself recedes into the background. The more in our emotional experience, the reverse is happening. The more the object of our own subjective experience is our own being, our own state, and whatever's causing that, that starts to recede into the background. So they're actually conceptual opposites, okay? The more, the deeper you go into a, into a state of contemplation, you arguably are getting further away from being in an emotional state. You're not getting closer to being in an emotional state. Does that make sense? So then the question is like, how are you saying we're to contemplate, contemplate, and magically your heart's gonna start racing, your blood pressure goes up, you start sweating, your eyes dilate, you have butterflies in your stomach, you start your hands, your, your hands feel all clammy. Like, like, how does that happen? It doesn't seem to work. Now, to be honest, for most of us, it will never happen. And for reasons, and we'll talk about subsequently in the chapter and solutions to work around that problem. But at least in the ideal case, what's the mechanism by what make, that makes that take place? Okay. Um, are you, there, there's an idea that I'm sure you've, you've encountered in your own life that Sometimes, if you try to hold something in, eventually um, that stops working and it comes out very intensely, yes? Okay. In other words, that your capacity to kind of set something aside or contain it or to keep it out of your mind is limited. And as that thing builds in its pressure, eventually it overpowers you. <laughs> That makes sense? Okay. So now, when the person is doing this contemplation, in order to do the contemplation, what do they have to do to that emotional state? Suppress it. They have to suppress it. Okay, is that, 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 from everyone that was the last week, as we did those exercises, very clear, like, you have to keep your emotions out of your subjective experience in order to do that contemplation, right? It's not that you're like anti-emotion, right? 
Um, but you're trying to, but, but it, 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 you're keeping them out, not actively, like I'm actively repressing them, I'm actively blocking them out, but rather it's implicitly by constantly trying to make my awareness only the thing I'm contemplating. As we spoke about before, when you get distracted, just observe that you're distracted and bring it back. The more and more you do that, just by default, you're shutting everything else out, including how that's making you feel, right? Okay, right now we're gonna just bracket that it's making you feel something and why that happens. But we're just gonna, we're just gonna, we're gonna bracket that and come back to it. But it is making you feel something. And the more you contemplate, the more it's making you feel something, but also because you're contemplating what's happening. Those, those things are not part of your subjective experience. But your ability to keep that blacked out is limited, right? So what's eventually going to happen? It's gonna explode. And at some point, the, 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 the effect of what you are aware of that it's having on you becomes too much to bear and you just burst out into a full-fledged emotional experience. That's what he's describing. Okay? In other words, what, the minute the person is having that full-fledged emotional experience, it actually pulls them out of the contemplation. Okay? One of the things that in the, 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 the real... Good, the real expert practitioners of this type of thing would really work on is just like when you exercise, like how far can you, how, like how long can you hold the muscle? How far can you push yourself when you're running these types of things, right? Increase your endurance and your stamina. One of the things was to increase and work on not letting your mind wander off your awareness of the greatness of Hashem, even though you have this tremendous emotional pressure pushing on you. And the longer you do that, What's the payoff going to be? That when finally you do break, right? The emotion that comes out is going to be far more intense, far more profound, have far more ramifications on your life. And so there's this kind of like, by holding off for as long as possible, allowing that emotional pressure to come into your awareness, that emotional pressure ends up becoming extremely intense. Now, what happens though, if you like do the opposite, you like try to like, get yourself to feel something emotional. Well, then you're moving yourself out of that contemplation, out of that awareness of Hashem, and you're short-circuiting the whole process. So there's this kind of almost paradoxical thing which I mentioned in the class. In order to achieve the intense emotion, you have to try not to be having intense emotion. Not because you're anti-emotion, because you're so focused on something which is just awareness of something beyond yourself, i.e. the greatness of Hashem. So now the thing we have to explain is that bracketed part. Why is my awareness having an effect on me? Because it is not the case that simply being aware of something automatically has an effect on you. This is not true, okay? Um, for instance, if, you, if I were to tell you to contemplate, um, uh, let's think of something, the economic systems of the Elamite Empire, which existed way back when. You know about the Elamite Empire, yes? Chomish, Parshas Lech Lecha, the war of the four kings, the five kings, the, yeah, they were the Elamites. They were, they, were, they were a serious empire in ancient times. Anyway, so if we were to like have a whole class and we'd explain how the economic system of the Elamites worked, um, and then I asked you to contemplate on that system, um, I venture to say you would not probably, no matter how much you contemplate and how much you like really put your mind to being aware and aware and aware, that would ever produce intense emotional reactions. Right? It wouldn't have a strong emotional effect on you. Why not? It's not personal. You have no connection to the matter. Right? Now, the one exception would be is if you have been cursed by, the, by being an intellectual. You've been become, if you have the curse of being an intellectual, that means is that everything you find personally relevant, why? Because you can make everything into an interesting concept. So the substance of that you're thinking about doesn't really have an emotional effect on you, but the, the, the concepts, the fact that you're conceptual. But bracket that, that's like a, you know, an interesting disease, intellectuals. Um, normal people, <laughs> Right? If it has no bearing on any part of their being, no matter how much they're trying to contemplate and be aware of it, the best they get is some kind of like clear understanding of it and that's it. Right? That make sense? Okay. This is where the idea that you have a godly soul comes in. If I'm going to contemplate God and I want the greatness of God to have an emotional effect on me, that means before I contemplate the greatness of God, there has to be some part of me to which the greatness of God is somehow relevant. Does that make sense? Now, is the greatness of God relevant to my animal soul? 
Mm. No. So can I make a slight caveat? A slight change? Not directly. For instance, is security, like in life, feeling secure, is that something that is of direct relevance to my animal soul? Yes. Okay. Is Hashem, or could Hashem be construed as a provider of security? Mm-hmm. And in that sense, could Hashem become relevant and meaningful to my animal soul? Mm-hmm. Okay. But then my emotions are to Hashem or to the ultimate provider of security? The ultimate provider. Right? So this is the issue, is that when the animal soul, you can, you can do contemplation that produces emotional, uh, that has an emotional effect on your animal soul in relation to, to Hashem, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is because the person has a godly soul, right? As, and we, we saw that previously, it, it mentioned specifically the godly soul. The awareness of the greatness of Hashem is of direct relevance to the godly soul, and therefore it, it produces an emotional response in the godly soul. But that emotional response in the godly soul is not something you're aware of because you're too busy contemplating. So what happens to that emotional energy? doesn't disappear, it just... Builds up. Builds up. Until the pressure of that emotional energy overrides your ability to focus on the contemplation of the person bursts out into kind of an emotional experience. This is why sometimes if you ever read like English translations of old Hasidic texts, they'll talk about this thing called ecstatic prayer, which doesn't mean jumping up and down while you're davening. It means having such an awareness of Hashem that you literally cannot contain the emotional response and you have an ecstatic response. Which could, his spilus. Okay. Um, traditionally, just to, to flesh this out more, traditionally in Chabad, there was this notion of what is called a nigun. Nigun loosely translated as music, um, but in Chabad it takes on a very specific connotation that a nigun is the use of music, um, generally um, music that is sung with a person, sung by a person, not played, um, used in the context of cultivating and your relationship and serving Hashem. The, the ideal form of the nigun in Chabad now, when I say ideal, that means did most people ever achieve this? No. But the ideal form of nigan in Chabad is that the person does not sing the nigan. But rather, the Yiddish expression goes, the, the nigan sings itself. Meaning that what happened, the person has having this awareness. That awareness is affecting their, an emotional response to their godly soul. That emotional response to the godly soul becomes so overwhelming, it, 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 it comes out. And to the degree to which the person has a, a, a kind of musical sense to their heart, which is a discussion for another time, that manifests with, as an unconscious musical expression. Unconscious, not in the sense of not, you're not intending to sing that particular song. It just comes out. Okay? In that sense, the music is not there to help you pray. The music is evidence that you have prayed. See the difference? Okay. Now, the animal soul, right? The animal soul, the greatness of Hashem doesn't have any direct relevance. It's only when you put the greatness of Hashem in some other terms that you can relate to. And remember we discussed, when we talked about the greatness of Hashem, we're talking about actually getting our awareness of Hashem to be outside of those. And we start with something we're, we're familiar with in our regular everyday experience. And the idea was to come to a more authentic sense of what makes Hashem great in and of himself, right? And the reason for that is, is that the goal here is to, elicit a, the, is, is to elicit an emotional response of the godly soul. If my goal was simply to get my animal soul, my, my kind of human sensibilities, to be emotionally engaged with Hashem, there are simpler ways to do that. This is very important because the Alter Rebbe is not saying this is the exclusive path to, to feeling emotion. What he's saying is this is the exclusive path to feeling emotion from the godly soul, right? Emotions that are oriented towards and about Hashem, not vicariously through something else. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so now let's just stop here and let's go back to, to what we started this thing. Remember we spoke about there's the tzaddik, the rush, and the benini. The tzaddik, we said, is a person whose whole psyche is permeated by the godless soul, right? So the animal soul is completely subjugated or transformed, whatever the case might be. The Russia is a person who, where his psyche is being dominated by the 
animal soul, meaning that the godly soul either is in a subordinate position and needs permission for the godly soul to express itself, from the animal soul to express itself, or it actually just abandons the whole enterprise altogether because there's no point, right? What we, we said the Baini was where there's no actual, no one is subordinate to anybody else, right? And so what ends up happening is that each person kind of excels in their arena, right? The arena where the, where the godly soul is more powerful is the mind. The arena where the animal soul is more powerful is the emotions, right? But what have we just learned? When the godly soul uses its mind, what does it develop? Very intense emotions. And at that point, the emotions of the godly soul can be more powerful, right? More, more pertinent to the person's life than whatever emotions they would have ex be experiencing because of their animal soul. And they would be experiencing emotions that are not centered around what makes me feel good, but are centered around a sense of the truth of Hashem's greatness. And that would be like kind of the ideal state of a Bainani. Has the animal soul really become subjugated? No. But it's just less powerful, even in the realm where seemingly it would be more powerful the emotions, if you can create these kinds of intense emotions, these might be more intense than the whatever emotional experience you're having from the animal soul. And so in practice, the person is living a godly life. And I mean living in an experiential sense of godly life, not just behaving godly, even though their animal soul has really not been truly subjugated. Okay? So that's, that's what he's describing. That's how this works. Are there questions on this before we start moving on to fear and then love and mitzvahs? So the reason why this doesn't happen in the animal soul The real issue is doesn't see it as relevant. The the Rebbe's son, the Mithra Rebbe, discusses the danger of altering your contemplation so that what you're doing is working with the animal soul. You're trying to convince the animal soul of how important God is, and you end up getting the animal soul very on board, but you haven't really, if, you haven't really brought out the godly soul, and therefore you've kind of failed the objective. Right? I could, we, like, uh, we could have a whole class, and we could have like, you know, an essay writing um, Thing and, uh, and, and a meditation thing and uh, you know music thing all centered around like appreciating how much Hashem takes care of our physical needs and we could become very emotionally attached to Hashem but that would all be the animals but right. where does the you come into the godly emotions the you yeah you said that emotions are all centered around yourself like so this is why for the godly soul, the emotions are considered to be a less authentic manifestation of itself. Since the godly soul is all about Hashem, it's primary, it's, it's more authentically functioning as itself in the state of contemplation. In chapter, right, whereas the emotions are kind of the consequence, the effect of that. The animal soul is the reverse. The animal soul has a greater sense of really being itself when it's having an emotional experience and has to kind of like work to have kind of a, a rational maturity about life as we all know from our experience. Is that the reason for the focus on um, building that stamina? Because as opposed to like developing that pressure? There's, there's th that, 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 is, that is another reason, but that's not uh, ostensibly the reason here. The reason, the reason that you would do it here is because you want the emotional intensity, because it's the emotion that we're, the, the emotional intensity is important for what he's describing. Other places in Chassidus, it describes that um, if you don't let the emotional intensity like push you out of that contemplative state, you can achieve higher levels of connection to Hashem because you're you're not wrapped up in your own sense of experiencing of how it makes you feel. But that's not really what he's pushing here. Again, all of this is like not you know it's explained at length in other places, but it's important to understand that's what he's describing. So we move later on. He says not everyone can do this. Like oh yeah, I understand. I relate. I can't do that. I don't see myself doing that. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not in fifty years. I mean, maybe it'll happen. You don't know for sure, but like I need some other like go-to approach to things. Okay, so now we're going to go into the text and we're going to go start talking about the specific emotional responses and their effects on our lives. Okay, so we are um, the line that says spirit of knowledge. Sorry, sorry, before that. His understanding will create. His understanding will create a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord in his mind to make him turn away from the evil con condemned by the Torah or by the rabbis, even from a minor prohibition, heaven forbid. Okay, so let's first talk about the fear. And then afterwards we're gonna talk about why it's in his mind. 
Um, and then we'll talk about the effect of that fear. Okay? Why would contemplating Hashem cause you to be afraid? And specifically, what is this person contemplating? The greatness of Hashem. So why would contemplating the greatness of Hashem make you feel afraid? Nobody knows. It makes you feel small. You have a place? So, let's do a show of hands. How many people um, want to avoid feeling afraid in life? By show of hands. Okay. Representative, now that we seem to have a pretty strong consensus, why do you want to avoid feelings of fear? I'm just talking about the emotional experience. Why would you like to avoid the feelings of fear? Because it's not pleasant. Because it's not pleasant. Yeah? It makes you feel vulnerable and you don't want to feel vulnerable. It makes you feel vulnerable and you don't want to feel vulnerable. Okay. So I'm going to talk about two points. Number one, the unpleasantness, just generally, and that idea. And then we're going to talk about the vulnerability part more specifically. Okay, there is a woman who does not feel fear. I know of one, I, I don't know her personally. Her name is a secret, for reasons I'll explain shortly. But there's one woman I know of who does not feel fear. Why is her name a secret? Your wife. What? Your wife? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not a dangerous person, but it's a... Let's, let's take the following example. You're walking down the street, right? And there's, and your the sidewalk is narrow, and there's a car coming very quickly. What do you do? Sorry. What? Move you move to the side, right? Really quickly. Do you stop and think, hmm, there's a car. That car is moving. It's moving quickly. There's narrow space. There's a likelihood it would hit me. If it hit me, I might be injured or possibly die. That would be an unpleasant consequence. I think the rational thing to do would be avoid it, right? Do you go through that mental process? You're dead. Right. What you do is you just, you feel a kind of a fear and it propels you to act, right? She feels no fear, meaning life is very dangerous for her. She has to constantly be thinking. Think about like, think about like things where you have to like, you don't feel the fear at all. And you have to just like sit and make rational decisions about what's in your best interest, how hard that is. Right? So the reason why, the reason why her name is a secret is to protect her welfare. Well, it's a real person, yeah. It's a, it's, a case, it's a case study in psychology. She, as far as I understand, she's still alive. Is she a witch? Something's broken, in, something's broken probably in her neurology and something that just doesn't work. She probably went to a psychologist for some things and they analyzed and they realized that like this is a problem. She's not. She, she doesn't have a fear response. Just the thing. Like, does she live on the edge? Yeah, but she, she doesn't. No, she 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 doesn't. She doesn't. She, she is that enjoyable if you don't have the aspect of fear? What's that? She doesn't. Just, I, I I don't know her personally, and I only I only know about this like from reading things about things that. Um, but from my understanding is that she's she's like a mature kind of rational person, but she'll engage in risky behavior if she doesn't think it through ahead of time. Not because, <laughs> kind of like, she kind, have, like a very instinctive reaction. What right? That's what's missing. That's what's missing, right? We also call when she it, rationally goes right. through something. She'll say, "Oh, this is a bad idea." Right, okay. right. We also call that we, we, that thought process, which takes more time, which is right, right, just right. Living There's another group of people who suffer from this. We call them teenage boys. They also <laughs> suffer from. A, I'm serious. They yeah, like right. statistically suffer from a lack of fear response. And then the problem is they don't think too much, make stupid decisions, right? Because is that one of the things? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but it is unpleasant, right? But like. In, in a similar way that pain responses. If your hand is in a fire, it's a good thing that you feel pain because the minute you feel the pain, you're going to remove your hand from the fire, right? Otherwise, you might keep it there for a long time. This is why the dentist tells you after you're by the dentist and they put the Novocaine in, you're not supposed to eat because you might bite your tongue off. Because have you ever eaten meat? You can bite down very hard. It's a good thing you can feel your tongue, but if you can't feel it, you won't stop. It's a problem. So feeling pain, right? Or the kind of the anticipation of a discomfort, right? Fear, that, that's a thing, you know. So, like, it might be unpleasant, but if I apply a little bit of thought as to why it exists and why she wouldn't, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing, right? So she feels pain, but she doesn't feel fear. As far as I understand. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist. I don't play one on TV, but... She can, like, rationalize Yeah, fear. yeah. Because she understands effects of things. Effects. So interesting. Does this make sense? Okay, so on a very basic level, now I'm going to ask you again. Would you like to feel fear in your life? Yeah. Okay. But I have a problem because, like, it is unpleasant. Okay, but it's like many things in life. Like, 
It's important, but it's unpleasant. Okay. Now, what kinds of things, and here's an important word, should make you feel afraid? I, will, I, want, I, want, I want a way of conceptualizing it. Don't want examples. Things that cause you harm. That makes sense? Things that cause you harm should bring you fear, right? Yeah. What? Other things that don't are irrational fears. Well, we could say that an irrational fear is when you feel fear towards something which does not going to actually cause you harm. Or if we want to be more sophisticated, because always always to be more sophisticated, we could say when you're feeling fear disproportionate to the harm. Right? Yeah. Like, yes, it is true when you get into a car, you might get into a car accident with serious consequences, right? But the likelihood of that is very low. For a person to feel a kind of inhibiting fear that they can't get into a car is probably disproportionate and it's not really an effective kind of a fear. Okay, good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so that was just talking about like, is it good to feel fear, broadly speaking? Okay? Now let's talk about vulnerability. Specifically, what is unpleasant about the feeling of fear is probably. I mean, there's obviously the physical discomfort, right? But one could argue that the physical discomfort is not really the issue. Um, there's interesting psychological literature that a lot of our physical, a lot of our emotional experiences, the physical component is very similar, and so a lot of it has to do with the framing. For instance, a lot of what people call exciting is the exact same thing as anxiety, just framed differently. Um, so it's questionable how much of it's the raw physical experience being unpleasant. Okay. But the vulnerability, that certainly seems unpleasant, right? We don't want to feel vulnerable. So what I want to do now is move to why don't we want to feel vulnerable and why might, why might we be wrong about that? Why don't we want to be vulnerable? Because we feel like we have no control. We anticipate pain. We anticipate pain. That makes sense? If I'm vul- what, what does it mean to be vulnerable? It means something can harm, harm me. And then we can add this sense that my vulnerability is like a genuine vulnerability. I don't really, not just something can harm me, I'm limited or to more or less degree to prevent that harm. Isn't vulnerability the willingness to experience? Oh, right. That's what I want to get to is, is you, could, you could think of vulnerability very differently. Is that if, I mean, it depends, like all words, it depends on how you use them, right? We say like, 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 um, this person is vulnerable to infection. What we mean is that the infection could seriously hurt them. This person is not vulnerable to infection. But we could think of it as a kind of an attitude towards life, towards experience, which is that, like, yes, things can affect me. I can experience things. And when I experience things, some of those experiences will be pleasant and some of those things will be unpleasant, right? So let's think of the following example. Let's say um, you have a close relationship with someone do you want them to hide their feelings so as to never cause you pain? Yeah. What? That they'll never tell you how they feel ever about anything so as to never cause you any pain. Do you want them to relate to you like that? No, no, no. Why not? There's also no connection. There's also no connection. Now, I, this is not really the topic of the discussion, but I think it's more to say. We should never be extremists. Just because one extreme is wrong doesn't mean the other extreme is right. It does not follow from that that therefore in order to have a good relationship, you just need to like have no filter between your thoughts and your mouth. Right? That is not a good idea. Right? In other words, you would hope that the person is going to think about is sharing this thing, regardless of how painful it might be for the person to hear, going to help bring us closer or not? And if yes, what is the way to do it that will help bring us closer, right? But that pain is not the thing that they're using to judge the thing in and of itself. Okay? There is a, a, a verse from King Solomon, the wisest of all men. Yosef das Yosef mechayv. If I'm correct, quoting it correctly. Which means as you increase in das, as you increase in knowledge, you increase in pain. <laughs> the opposite of ignorance is bliss, right? Now, that can be read as a as a criticism of increasing one's das, one's knowledge, right? Right? Because all you're doing by increasing knowledge is you're just increasing the amount of pain you're going to have. 
Conversely, how else could that, that teaching of Shlomo Melch be understood? The more you know, the more pain you'll feel. It could be a criticism of growing in knowledge, but could also be what? Like signifying the responsibility that comes with gaining knowledge. Right. And actually maybe even saying that tells you how important knowledge is. If, it's, if you're going to increase in pain when you grow in knowledge, and nonetheless it is still worth it, it's still important enough to do, that tells you about the significance of knowledge. There was one of the Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, he said, what did the Alter Rebbe introduce? What, what new insight did he have? Is that um, to increase in your awareness of God is to increase in pain. And the Alter Rebbe's novel thing, at least to this Hasid's experience, was that it's worth it. It is worth it to have that greater awareness of Hashem, even if it results in pain. Now, what is that pain exactly? You realize all of a sudden Hashem is going to hurt you. He's going to like do nasty things to you. To allow yourself to become a vulnerable, so you can open your, your more yeah. opportunities to be more connected to Hashem. Right, but that being more connected means like you're going to have to like, realize the reality of things. So we're going to start with a few of those things, right? The, the vulnerability to like face the reality of it for what it really is. So like, let's just go through a few, a few points. Number one. Can you, if you really contemplate the greatness of God, can you stand in front of God and feel justified in demanding anything anymore? If God is truly as great as we described last time. Do you have any like, well, I've, I've you know, been this righteous, I've been this pious, I've done this thing, and therefore like, yeah, so I deserve it, you owe me. Like that, that whole mindset, does that have any legitimacy? Okay, do you want to give that up? Think of how safe that makes us feel. Like you know that you have an issue with somebody else and you know I have an argument. I have a, I have a position I can take. I have something right Think about it, like, have you ever had a disagreement with someone, a friend or whatever, and you like think of like how you're gonna present your case that they can't help but concede that you have a point and so they have to kind of come, right? <laughs> that helps us feel like we can manage in life, right? You have to come to face-to-face with that doesn't exist between us and Hashem. Can you repeat it? When we, I'm not word for word, I can never say word for word. The idea, yeah, when we, when we, face conflict with others, one of the strategies that we have as people is we try to figure out how we can um, justify our position to them to kind of almost compel them to side with us, to agree with us, right? We call that negotiating. Can you really do that with Hashem? Given how great he really is, given the disparity between his being and our being, so that means when you now face Hashem and you have a conflict, you don't see eye to eye with Hashem. You, you, you don't have that kind of, well, you have to because of X, you have to because of Y, at least nothing of your own accord. I mean, it might be that Hashem has told you certain things, right? We do have an idea that Hashem has made a covenant with us and things like that. But you kind of, you can't really, you don't come with any, I'll, I'll use this term, you don't come with any rights towards when you're, when you're, when you're facing Hashem, right? We have a notion, I have rights, I'm entitled. I'm like, that's very vulnerable. Right? It's very exposed. Many people before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur like to do lots of mitzvahs. You know why? Because when Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Hashem judges us and we would like to be able to say, look, see how good I am. You have to judge me favorably. Can you really do that anymore psychologically if you... Okay, that's not good. But what do you gain? What do you gain by, what do you, you, you lost this sense, oh, I can just, uh, I, I, I have these rights, I have these entitlements vis-a-vis Hashem. You've lost that, but what did you gain? You gained a more authentic sense of who Hashem is. Like, like you, now your relationship is not based on a falsehood. So the question is, is that worth it? And this chassid saying, the al showed me that it's worth it. It's worth it to relate honestly, even if that means facing the pain of my own vulnerabilities. Okay, let's use another one. Um, one of the things that makes us feel that we can manage life is that we always have another option. We always have a plan B. There's always like, you know. Um, when we don't have a plan B, we often try to delude ourselves into thinking that 
that negative things can't occur. Okay, so let's use an example. Let's say you're trying to open a business and there's a possibility your business, your enterprise will fail, right? So you have the rational entrepreneur and the irrational entrepreneur. The rational entrepreneur is full aware that their business may in fact collapse and all the money will go down the drain, right? And they have considered that fully and they're like, okay, and if that happens, well, that's, I can live with that. And like, here's, what I'll, here's my plan going forward on that eventuality, right? So like, if this works out, good. And if this doesn't work out, my plan B is something that I'm okay with, right? Um, I, 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 there's a common investing advice. Don't invest money that you can't afford to lose kind of thing, right? Okay. Then there's the irrational entrepreneur, right? That their business has to succeed. Why does their business have to succeed? Because the possibility of not succeeding is too horrible of a thought to bear. Make sense? Okay. Um, let's think of some areas in our life. Um, I apologize in advance for the unpleasantness. Let's think about the health of our loved ones. How do we go through life thinking like, well, if it turns out if one of our loved ones, God forbid, has some sort of terminal disease or dies, like, yeah, I can live with that. Is that how we go around thinking like, like that's, that's, that's an acceptable plan B? Or do we go around thinking like, that just can't happen. It just can't happen. But why can't it happen? Too much pain. But now let's be honest. Like, does Hashem always conform to our expectations? No. So facing his true greatness means acknowledging that like we don't really have like a, as everyone's told someone, a contract with God for an easy life. But there's levels of what we're willing. So like the, a death or an illness of someone that you love is like the most pain that you could experience as a human. So there's levels of pain like people are willing to lose some money that's also painful people are willing even like I don't know the small day to day things they're willing to be late for this that's also like levels of pain uh-huh. in the big scheme of things people would rather not make like what you're saying about making a contract but like they're willing to go through certain pain just not others that's right so, but, but you don't have a say. But, but you don't really have a say. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. And so when a person like isn't like, th- so there's this kind of sense like, like I'm willing to like have this relationship with Hashem, but there's this almost like, but of course Hashem's not going to do X, Y, or Z to me because like, I couldn't handle that. But like that's not necessarily true. And so to have an authentic relationship with Hashem means to somehow face that. Now obviously facing that in the theory is not the same thing as facing it in reality. That there's some kind of vulnerability there, but that's part of like, like, I can I be very blunt for a moment? And I don't, I don't mean to say to be this flippant, but it's something that I think like if a person is like very serious, you dive into you take three steps back, three steps forward, you're standing before God, creator of heaven and earth, right? In what sense am I more guaranteed to a good life than someone that died in the Holocaust? And like, however we're going to like deal with all of us, which I don't make it, want to make an issue right now, but like God is still God and he still creates the world. He still runs the world. And like, there's still like, so if like, I can only like face him because like I make him small enough so that I don't feel vulnerable with the full range of what he can and has done in the universe. Then like, how authentic is my relationship with him? Not saying I'm afraid that he's going to do it to me. That's not what I'm getting at, right? That, that, that's not the point. More so just the acceptance. Just the acceptance that that, that, that is, that is, that is, that, 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 that's on, that's on the table. Like it's not, it's not out of the question. It has happened. And it's conceptually plausible. And like to be able to nonetheless open up with my, about my needs to him, right? And say, I need this, I need this, please help me. Like that, that, that. These are not simple states to be in, right? There's a lot of, Fear. There's a lot of like facing your own vulnerability. And I haven't gotten some of the deeper stuff that Hasidus is talking about. Like, this is more like on the basic levels. Okay, let's go one step further. If we've taken this idea of the greatness of Hashem as seriously as, 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 as supposedly we're supposed to, then, um, right, such that not before Hashem everything is nothing, is like that's at final stage. What is the only real value in life? What is the only thing that makes life worth living? 
Yeah, well, let's, let, yeah, I, I don't like that phrasing because it makes Hashem sound arbitrary. I, I, I think a, a better way of saying is wherever, whatever Hashem puts meaning into. Let's put it like that. Too. Okay, so then, that means, do I have like a plan B? Like if like, oh, my like finding the godly meaning in life doesn't work out, I can always like, I don't know, be a successful like environmentalist. Or like, I don't know, like, you know, build a good business or whatever else it is. Is that going to work? No. no. So now what's going to happen to my, uh, my attitude towards sin at this point? What is sin going to start to seem like? Because sin is the, 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 the and I write, I mean, sin is those behaviors which are contrary to the meaning that God puts in the world, right? But if the only thing that makes life valuable is the meaning that God puts into it, then what is sin? Disconnect. I want you to use different words because, I, because that becomes a propaganda word. I don't want to think about a relationship. Again, there's your life. You're living your life. But the only thing you've come to realize that the only thing that really has meaning, that really has value is Hashem. And so the only thing in life that's meaning is the places where Hashem puts his value into it. Okay? And sinning is those behaviors which are contrary to that. So then how would you experience it's not, sin? It's Hashem putting his value into it, but it's just much more covered up. No. It's devaluing. Devaluing of life. That's the same thing as saying disconnect. Right, I know it's the same. I just want you to use different words because I want I want to change the way we. I want I, I want to make it a little bit more. Um, what sort of looking for? Unbearable. The word disconnect is something that we too easily okay with. Well, I can accept a certain degree of disconnect. I don't that it, it becomes oh it becomes that we become okay with. yeah. The only thing that is of any true meaning is Hashem. Therefore, the only thing of meaning of life in life are those places where Hashem puts His meaning into it. And sin are those things which are antithetical, which are contrary to the meaning Hashem's placed in it. So what does it mean to be in a state of sin, to do sin? What does that mean? What? To cause death. To cause death. Death of what? Death of yourself. To cease to, 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 to have any... Value any being, any any reality to your life at all. By the way, at that point, you need to be afraid of God punishing you. Yeah. If that's what you're afraid of, if, if that's how you're feeling. Isn't that the punishment? Yeah, that's a punishment enough. In other words, if the only thing, it's, it's hard to figure out the right words for this. If the only thing that can make my existence have any semblance of, of, of value is, is something Hashem puts into it. And then I live my life in such a way where the, 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 the value Hashem puts into it can't be present. I have taken my life and emptied it of any value, of any meaning, of any significance, of any reality. Like, and, if, and if I really had that sense, then I feel like every sin is like leading to kind of like an existential death. Like sin is like, like, like a chasm that you can't walk back from. That's like a very heavy thing to live with, right? Because like, you know, there's like, you know, for men not waking up on time to say Shema in the morning. <laughs> right? You know, or, or, you know, or, you know, not making a bracha or like so many sins. Right? And the notion that, what's Hashem going to do to me if I sin becomes like the most silly question in the world. Like, what do you mean, what's he going to do to me? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, if, if, you, if, if, you, if you lose all of your money, what are the financial penalties the government will impose on you? It's like, like what do you mean? Like, I, 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 I'm destitute. I don't, I can't, I can't feed myself tomorrow. Like, like it's a non-issue. I, I want to use more extreme examples, but I think there's a limit to how heavy things can be in a class. There's a way in which the more... The, the godly soul sense that like, this is all there is, this is all that's real, that that that, that the, the living life with human considerations just seems so shallow and silly. Like when a person has that sense, they feel vulnerable, they feel cautious, they can feel maybe overwhelmed, right? By the way, and this is very important: is this person afraid of what Hashem will do to them? Mm-hmm. Not really. That's not the. the, the in fact, it actually says in Chassidus, being afraid of what Hashem will do to you is in fact a sign that a person hasn't achieved this kind of 
vulnerability, isn't as lacking in this fear. There's a, there's a very cute analogy from the Baal Shem Tov to illustrate this point. The Baal Shem Tov said um, that if a person, uh, a, a child is afraid of getting uh, stuck with a thorn, so like having a thorn that gets stuck in their finger. Why? Because if they get the thorn stuck in their finger, they're gonna, the parents are going to pull out the thorn and it's going to hurt. They don't want to have a kid with a splinter, right? They go crazy. Ah, don't pull it out. Now, why do the parents pull it out? They don't get an infection. So if the child was more connected to reality, what would he be afraid of? He'd be afraid of having a thorn because you get an infection. And then if Chas Shalom he did get a thorn stuck in him, right? He'd run to the parents to take it out because he doesn't want Chas Shalom get an infection, right? But the child, not being so wise, is only afraid of the thorn because of the pain of the parents pulling it out. And once he has the thorn, he's afraid of letting the parents know because God forbid they might pull it out, okay? So what's a sin? Existential death, right? Devaluing life of anything that makes your existence have any purpose, value whatsoever at all. Like that doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the barbecue after I die. That's what bothers me. <laughs> so first off, the barbecue after you die is like somehow heal the problem of the existential death of sin. But, but secondarily, it's like, like if you are like, once, once you're afraid of sin, like Gehenna and punishment is like a non-issue. And that goes back to what I was saying before. You can elicit emotions without doing what we're talking about, but then they're not connected to Hashem and the godly soul, right? I could think like, oh, Hashem really runs the world. And if I disobey him, he might do things to me to punish me. And I don't want that. So I should obey him, right? It's called fear of punishment. And if I really believe and I really take that seriously, I might obey Hashem. But have I, have I brought any of my, the emotions of my godly soul out? No. I'm just working with like kind of like this ego self-preservation of the animal soul. So you see like the more Hashem is great, the smaller I feel, the more vulnerable I feel, the more cautious I feel, right? And all of that is coming because I'm actually connected to the reality of, of him and me and my life and what's going like. And one second, and, and, one second, and knowing that, going back to the woman who feels no fear, we want to feel fear because we don't want to like, not have a sense that something is dangerous or something is, 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 is harmful. We don't have a sense of being closed off to connecting and experiencing other things, right? So we need a certain amount of that discomfort. And that's where again, a person has to make that choice. Is the connection worth the, the discomfort of that feeling? Yeah, someone wanted to ask a question. Yes? Um, what if a person they get like paralyzed in that fear and then instead of like motivating them to like continue this like like getting true knowledge of Hashem or like doing more misfold or like rectifying their behaviors, what if it like they're just paralyzed within it and then they're like, oh, they like run away? Like what is that person supposed to do? You heard of Yona? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what happened to him, right? Yona had a prophecy. And his response to his prophecy was to run away. It happens. But his story is like left on the cliffhanger. You don't really know. What? Like, I, I feel like you don't really get closure on Yona either, though. I, I brought up Yona simply because not everything has a, a, an answer. Not everything has a program, right? If I, I can tell you how to keep Shabbos. I can, when we start moving into, as Alter calls them, the hidden matters, how we feel about Hashem, our awareness of Hashem, we can only speak in very general themes. But yeah, people have had very, very genuine encounters and experiences, and we always have free will. We always have the ability to, to weigh things using a different metric, and we always have the ability to say, this is too intense for me, I walk away, I run away. I, I know people not in the same context, I know people started learning Hasidus, who grew up religious, not Chabad, not Hasidic, and very serious Torah scholars, and they start learning Chosidus, and they're not dumb, um, both in the intellectual sense and the mature sense. And they really, they, they got out of the text a lot of things that you need commentaries for, and they realize what this means, and their decision was to stop learning it. Because if, the, if I keep learning this, then this is gonna be my sense of the truth, and I don't think that's just too, I don't want that. I, 
that I, I prefer Judaism where I can feel like I'm like winning the game and getting 100% on every, you know, on every test. I like that experience. I don't want that to go away. So I will truncate my Jewish approach in order people have that kind of choice. There's no like solution to that problem. It's kind of the inverse of what tshuva is, by the way. Tshuva is like a person's like, you know, I, 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 I'd rather live in that kind of experience of like, you know, not being cognizant of a shaman at some point to say, you know what, I don't want that anymore. I miss what I don't have an answer. I don't have a, I, I just can tell you that it occurs, it happens, and everybody that goes through things like that, their story is ultimately going to be unique, but have similarities to everybody else's story. But there's not... Um, there's the famous story of, of Acher. Acher was, a, was one of the sages of the Mishnah. He had a spiritual experience, along with three other sages. And one sage, Rabbi Akiva, he came into that experience for a good place. It says, B'Shalom in peace, and he left it in peace. Um, ben Zoma went through the same experience, they all went together, and uh, he went crazy. He had a breakdown. Ben Azai died, but Acher, Lisha Ben he came out of that experience being a hater of Judaism. Now, part of that had to do with his attitude going into it and how he framed what he experienced, right? Um, I'll give you an, another story slightly differently. Someone, the, the Maggid of Mizrich, who was the Baal Shem Tov successor, he was very particular about who he accepted as a disciple. So in Mizrich, the, the Maggid did not walk around and travel around like the Baal Shem Tov. He stayed in Mizrich, and he had the disciples come to him. And so you had two groups of people. You had his disciples, and you had people who wanted to be his disciples but weren't accepted, but they still felt his teachings were valuable, so they were kind of like just hung around and like helped out and like... Um, the, the, parenthetically, the Alter Rebbe one time was, said there was a Febrengen between three of these people who the, the Maggid did not accept as his disciples, but they still hung around so they could hear teachings from the Maggid, you know, or secondhand and things like that. So one time, and they would like help out, they would chop the wood or make the food for the Febrengens or things. So the three of them were Febrengen, three of them were Febrengen amongst themselves. And they got into the question of why, what was so special about Avraham when he did the uh, Akkad, the, the binding of Yitzchak. And one said what was so special, because many Jews have sacrificed himself for Hashem. So one said that he did it with alacrity, Jesus. And the other is that he was like the, said that he was the first one to do it. He didn't have any precedent. Another one said he did it with joy. And the Altebbe said, I observed that each one was saying that based on their own sense, that had they been in that situation, they were in the place where if Hashem had told them to do it, they would have been able to do it with alacrity or with joy or without prior precedent. So those were the people that Magid did not accept as his disciples. So it gives you a sense of how great a disciple was. Now, what's relevant, the, the reason why I brought this up is there was somebody who was a, a descendant of a very famous rabbi, very, very famous rabbi, who came to be a disciple of the Magid. And the Magid did not accept him, and he was extremely offended because he was a great rabbinic scholar, well, very famous, the son of a rabbinic scholar, the son of a son of, going back to a very, very prestigious rabbinic family. And um, the Maggid had some of his disciples were people who were not known from such a, you know, that it was famously Reb Zusha Vanapoli. Zusha Vanapoli um, was not of a distinguished, famous family. And um, he, he, he was not known for his scholarship. Um, as I'll tell you a story about his scholarship in a second. And he, he points to, and Zusha portrayed himself as a very, like, you know, simple, sincere, but not like, and says this, and so he was very offended, and he tells the Magad, I'm the son and grandson of such and such people. Look, you have this, like, this, this peasant as your disciple. Why don't you take me? And so the Magad said, Do you know the kind of year, the kind of fear of Hashem that he experiences just like on a regular Tuesday afternoon? <coughs> Not talking about like, you know, Yom Kippur, and he's like, you know, just like regular Tuesday afternoon walking around. Let me, let me give you a taste of what he's experiencing. And so the, I don't know how to do this because I'm not a tzaddik, but he manipulated this man's soul so that he would experience the same level of awareness and the ensuing vulnerability before Hashem that Reb Zusha walked around with on a daily basis, okay? This man, I, I do not exaggerate, lost control of his bowels and collapsed into some kind of like a, like a mess. It's like, you know, <laughs> not everyone can handle everything. You're right. Not everyone can handle everything. That may be why Sasha doesn't want everyone to experience everything, but this, yeah? Can you just say when they, when people at Palestine, like they're, 
all the Jews that were there, like when God first spoke to, like everybody basically like died for right. a second. And then, like, yes. Like, never mind. Well, th- it's a little bit more complicated. That Thalter actually discusses that, that event in chapter 36. But yes, you're right. It's the same idea taken to extreme, but there's more things going on there. Anyway, Reb Zusha, just a note about Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha, the Alter Rebbe said he's a, true, he's a true student of Torah. Because one time, the Alter Rebbe and his friend, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Redditch, who were known as two great Torah scholars, were debating an issue. Um, um, the commentary from, from the, the Tosos commentary, there was a rabbi named Rebbeinu Yitzchak, and he explained something on the Gemara, and they were debating because there's something in his answer that doesn't make sense. And they were debating, trying to understand it. And Zusha comes along and says, what are you talking about? And they're like, Zusha's like, very God-fearing, he's very holy, but he's not the most scholarly individual. Like, Zusha's not really for you. And he says, what? 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 He says, what? you're talking Torah? Tell me, I want to know. It's Torah. And so they tell him the question, and he, he, he follows through. And he, and he says, I don't understand the answer. Like, I don't understand it. And then he starts crying. And he turns to, to heaven and says, 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 Father, Zusha doesn't understand your Torah. Zusha doesn't understand your Torah. And he keeps crying, crying, crying until he falls in a faint. Then he wakes up and he tells them that uh, he had a vision where Rabbeinu Yitzchak, the one who they had the question about, came to him and explained to him the answer. And this is the answer. So, like, there's not, like, there's Rabbeinu Yitzchak walking around with a kind of fear that, that, that you know, a grown adult would like not would like cause them to like completely melt. Okay, so different people can experience different things. So it's just two sides of your question. It's a, it's a real thing. That's why some people prefer to play it safe. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? I'll learn the halacha. I'll try and like you know have some basic, you know, human decency and like uh, good enough. I can understand that. Yeah. But the, the the godliness is not really being expressed on the human level that way. Maybe expressed in the mitzvahs you're doing, but not in the human level. Good? Okay, tomorrow we will talk about how the fear affects our performance of mitzvahs. Um, I'm not going to be here tomorrow.